Welcome to another episode, Nerds Amalgamated. I am DJ, and with me today, I have the professor. Hello. How's it going? Pretty well. Good week? Yeah, I'm I'm now a cattle vet. To be fair, <laughs> I just put Dettol on a calf, but... Hey! You know, I'm going to put it on my resume. <laughs> so the calf is so now you have to tend to that calf and and feed it and love and lovingly tell stories to the calf and all nah. the all the motherly stuff. No, nah, it's just a weekend thing. Ah, uh, has the calf got a name yet? Fred. <laughs> you just named it out of uh, thin air, didn't you? No, I mean the name did come out of thin air, but we didn't pick the name for that reason. Fair enough, fair enough. Someone just said, come on, Fred. And we're like, okay, Fred now. What time what what time was the was the birth? I don't know. It's a pretty big calf. Ah, uh, so it wasn't under some starry, starry sky with the with the with the planets all aligning saying, I've got this wonder calf kind of thing. DJ, you're making this weird. This isn't Charlotte's <laughs> web. Uh, speaking of all things weird and amazing um you've got a story about the uh, solar upcoming solar eclipse yes i'm very excited about this we actually got a uh, got an email for some fan mail telling us about a solar eclipse that's coming up and the people who sent us this mail actually wrote a full guide on how to photograph every part of an eclipse Nice. Very nice. Yeah, so for our viewers, uh, our upcoming solar eclipse is on the 21st of June. Unfortunately for us in Brisbane, it's not visible. You'll be Uh, able to see a partial eclipse from Darwin and Cape York, but the uh, best place to view the the full eclipse is from Central Africa up through um, the eastern part of the Saudi Peninsula, northern India, and out through China. Uh, so the, the, this one website on our show notes will tell you where else are the places we can see the at least a partial eclipse. Yep. So um, we also got the photography guide as well. So Yes, and it's a very detailed guide. It uh, explains the different kinds of eclipse, uh, total, annular, hybrid, partial. It explains how it happens and then how to actually photograph it safely. Because if you're using a telescope, and even if you're not, you got to wear your safety goggles. Safety squints aren't good enough for this. So what's with the... Uh, okay, so I've been meaning to ask, so with all, what's with the safety goggles when looking at an eclipse? I well, you're looking, as, oh, uh, you're looking straight at the sun. Okay. And that hurts when you look at it normally, but because it's partly obscured by the moon, it... um. You don't get the same signal to shut your eyes, but you still get the full force of the ultraviolet and the very bright light, just subdued slightly. Okay. Yeah, I was just, because I was looking, because oh, I, I saw an old Simpsons episode once, and Marge looked at the eclipse without wearing any protective eyewear, and she start, she suddenly became blind. So I was wondering, like, ah, oh, okay, so I wonder if that's actually true, or is it a false thing? Then you see all these people wearing sunglasses, and ah, oh, okay, fair enough. Well, it won't make you blind instantly, but it's also not very good for you. Okay. Yeah, so they were saying, that, so this guide's got um, ways of photography, um, taking photographs with a DSLR camera. So um, the focal length of the lens uh, over 100 is the focal length formula equals the diameter of the sun on sensor. So that's how you calculate the diameter image of the sun on a digital camera sensor. Okay. Yes, and I see they've uh, pre-populated a few uh, 
a few versions of that. Yeah. So with um, photography, uh, especially when you're taking space photography, as fun as it is, it does have a lot of, it's a high risk. It's a high risk thing, isn't it? Solar, um, solar photography is high risk, especially if you're dumb enough to look into the, uh, into the eye of the, well, the eyepiece of the telescope while it's aimed at the sun. Like that will send you blind instantly because it will literally burn your retinas out. But, um, like night photography is really just difficult because in low light situations, you want a long shutter speed to get a, a good quality image. But you also have to deal with every slight vibration messing up your image and the movement of the stars. So you get a streaky image if you don't have a uh, a telescope mount that's following the stars as as you take the photo. Yeah. Okay. So which is the safest um, which is the safest um, aspect of the eclipse to take photos of? Uh, partial or a full solar? Funnily enough, it's actually uh, totality. So when the sun is entirely covered, it's safe to view it without yeah, safety goggles. Yeah. Although it's funny, though, when um, when looking at the solar eclipse, it's it's cool when you remember those good old um, days when you have when you have the tissue box and the and the tissue roll and you look in and you um, I think you put a couple of tissues and you can see the see the eclipse safely through yes, that. Yes, I've hole. done that. You've done yeah, that before. You, um, you're basically describing a pinhole camera, and they yes. mention that in this article. So a pinhole camera is um, there's a fancy name for it. I don't remember off the top of my head. Uh, camera obscura. Yes, that's it. Yep. So basically you have a a dark box or a box with a tiny hole at one end and it creates an image of whatever's whatever the hole's facing. So what uh, we did was take a well a shoe box or a tissue box, pierce it at one end, point that end at the sun and then you get the image of the eclipse. But you don't need that even. They mentioned it in the article and I've seen it myself that even areas with um, trees or with uh, basically anything that can cause a um, create a natural pinhole camera effect and you get m- like millions of little eclipse images on the ground. And it's also hard to focus on the eclipse as well, isn't it? Like, yeah, it's a long way away. Yeah. I'm looking at the article they're saying here, how the, uh, there's a section saying how to focus on the sun. It says, never depend on the autofocus feature of the camera. It may fail if it doesn't find a suitable object to focus on. Autofocusing on faraway landscape features is not recommended as the autofocus on the sun on infinity would be slightly blurred. So yeah. the rem- best way to remedy it is ha- um, have patience and spend time focusing. Since you're focusing in the daytime, come prepared with a dark umbrella or a dark a uh, thick dark cloth to cover your face and the camera screen. This um, article also t- talks about um, taking photos of an entire composite image of a solar eclipse as well, which when you look at it, it looks really cool Having seeing a sequence. Yeah, it's a very uh, striking effect. Yeah. And they explain the software you can use to stitch it together. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, the um, the most popular one for for, for when taking pho- photography is the uh, diamond ring, which is basically the bright so- uh, spot of the sun shining from the last valley of the moon, the bright pink chromosome, the dark circle for- formed by the black moon. Chromosphere, finally- not chromosome. Oh, thank you. Chromosphere. Um, and finally, the appearance of a corona um, around the black lunar disc. Uh, diamond yeah, it's ring- a neat effect. Yeah. 
So you end up with, um, yeah, because the sun's shining through the valley, you get a bright spot on one side of the moat and then a, a ring around it formed by the, um, by the corona. For budding photographers, I think this is a very, very good guide. I mean, yeah, he's, he's, photography is very, um, very like tricky to get into, but there's a lot of great guides and articles I've seen in the last few years. Yeah. And it's, uh, the other uh, other area of photography, I think it's is very very tricky. I think it would be equally as tricky as astrophotography. It would be um, lightning photography. Yeah, I think most uh, photographers for that will set up a long exposure and then just let it sit for a while, and then you capture a couple of lightning strikes. But because it's dark, you don't have to worry about the rest of your image becoming overexposed. Yeah, yeah. Like I'm, um, I'm reading through this article, um, and he, like I said, he, like I said, this um, article's well of research. He even did one about uh, Bailey beads. When you look at the photo, uh, Bailey's beads, it looks like a really cool effect of a of a black of a yellow outline. Yeah, one, my other favorite is actually the corona, not the virus. The uh, <laughs> basically just above the surface of the sun is. Sort of a, an atmosphere, for want of a better term, and the uh, the atmosphere of the sun forms into these shapes and patterns from the magnetic fields because the uh, particles are highly or highly magnetic, basically just like a um, the same effect that causes the aurora on Earth is responsible for the patterns you see in the corona. So they've got this really cool photo here of the uh, surface of the moon and the sun's corona around it. Uh, it looks like it's surround it it's like hugging the thing looks really cool yeah i will say this it you must have a very very high-end camera and a lot of software just to get that effect though and very very accurate as well in um, attention to detail yeah i imagine you would need a um they say you don't need to be very precise because you can capture a whole bunch of different uh images of the corona that will all work but i imagine you also need to like, you do need to make sure your camera is steady and aimed very well. Yeah. They do say, though, that you can capture some of it with a handheld shot. Yeah, this is this, this is one of those photos where you can use, like, remember the good old um, disposable cameras back in the day? Do they even have those? I don't know whether they have them now, but they were a thing. Or even a Polaroid wouldn't even do do justice to taking, taking a photo of the eclipse. We also have a total eclipse coming up in December. Oh, nice. Which this one's visible from South America. Okay. So, hang on a second. All of, all of the details will be all added onto our show notes. Um, so you can have a read through the articles and you can also check out what, when are the next few eclipses. So next one is 184 days from now. That's the next total eclipse. Yeah. So this one coming up on the 21st is annular, which... Um, <clears throat> Unfortunately, means that you won't get the really cool effect of totality, where the sun is just completely blanked out. But you know, any eclipse is cool. Yeah, just wear your goggles. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so uh, moving along to our next story, you got a story about um, a lost, a long lost game being found. Yeah, so back in 1992, Maxis had a division called the Business Simulations Division. And they were recruited by Chevron to make a sim refinery game for basically uh, 
low, well, high level um, training and gamification of operating a oil refinery. And unfortunately, the only copy of it that's ever turned up has been now taken off uh, archive.org because the uploader changed their mind. But uh, it has been, you know, it's out there now. So I expect you can find it somewhere if you look hard enough. I bet you someone will torrent it. Although we would like to anna- we like to say that we do not condone to- illegal downloading. Legal downloading is bad. Illegal downloading or legal downloading? Because I heard you say legal downloading is bad. I said illegal downloading. But um, yeah, as you were saying that um, this game is now available online. So it hasn't been so. Why did they sh- change their mind, did they say? Like, what was the reason? Well, Jason Scott, who runs the uh, archive.org and a bunch of other, basically, hist- history sites for computer history, um, that he says that they a lot of the time people upload stuff to archive and then get cold feet when it blows up because they suddenly realize, wait a minute, this uh, tension could have a negative effect on them. You know, it um, worst case scenario, it could get them sued or lose their job. Uh, although it's interesting how most people do not understand the term, the internet never forgets. Yeah. Once it's out there, it's very hard to get rid of every copy. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Unless, if you, uh, unless you're very, very rich and you can give to everyone a cease and desist letter, but that's a very, very hard case. Even then, I doubt it would. So tell tell us about Sim Refinery. What was, that, what was the game all about? So it's in the vein of the early Sim games by Maxis. So Sim City, uh, Sim Farm. There's a couple of different Sim games that were made, and it turns out uh, business um, the business simulations division created a prototype for Sim Refinery using some assets from Sim Farm and Sim City. But the idea is you can build a uh, build a refinery and create a um, create a refinery and learn how to process oil through it. Now, it's obviously not going to teach you exactly what you need to know, but I think the uh, well, I think it's probably just from what I've seen. I haven't played it big enough to uh, detailed enough to give you a good idea of what each part of the refinery actually does. I mean, this game would have been perfect if you released this like ten or twenty years ago, like just to teach um, structural engineers how to um, if a crisis was to occur, how do you deal with the crisis? That too, actually, they've got custom disasters that um, include accident reports and explain what happens, what you have to do, what damage is caused. Yeah, I'm just seeing um, in here they're saying, as a commissioned business aid, it was not available to the public until 2020. Little information about the game had existed, though Maxis had discussed its creation and some screenshots existed. Uh, Yeah, so it's still a prototype. And the um, author of this article reckons that there are parts where the um, parts, uh, there's a demo mode with pauses. And they reckon that that would have been done on stage, playing through the demo and giving the speaker time to explain things. Oh, okay. Do you reckon, though, that if you reckon they, this could, they could easily get the source code for this game? Not even though it's been taken out from Internet Archive? Uh, I, if someone has the executable, they can always decompile it. I don't know what language the early Sim games were written on or how hard they are to decompile, but it's um, a huge effort, and I imagine you'd probably just want to create a, uh, a 
create a new product. It would probably be easier to make a, a new product from scratch than to decompile it. Maybe something a bit like Open Transport Tycoon. Okay. Because we talk, uh, this reminds me of that uh, earlier game that you spoke about last week, uh, Days of Thunder. So what's the difference between that that scenario and this scenario? Well, with Days of Thunder, they found the original source code on a floppy disk and it was encrypted, but it was very weakly encrypted and they were able to decrypt the... So basically it had a password on it. They were able to crack the password and get the original code back out. In this case, you've got the finish executable, which um, when you when you write a program, you write the code and then form an executable, which has almost nothing uh, nothing to in it that will let you decompile it back to the original code. So you can look at it and like, if you decompile a, um, a game like this, you can find the code and reverse engineer it, but you're unlikely to get the original code. Like, yeah, you won't get the exact original code back. Okay. So there's projects like um, the Mario 64 decompilation project where the developers managed to get like basically one-to-one compilation but it's likely that even then the code isn't exactly the same. And then there's things that are ignored in compiling your code, like comments. So when you write a program, there's uh, you put in notes to yourself so you remember what things do. When it gets compiled, those get left out. So anyone working on a decompilation project has to work it out themselves. Mm-hmm. So with this um, discovery, um, will we ever see a... A customer game, should I say? actually not? No, I expect the copyright to this is possibly split between, uh, see, split between Chevron and Maxis, and I assume that if any of them are interested, either of them are interested in making a simulation game, they'll actually just come and do a new one. There's not a lot worthwhile pulling forwards from a an old DOS game. But it does have a, hit, a, a lot of nostalgic value, though. Yeah. I think most of it, the reason people want to see this is because of, um, well, because it's so old, it's so unknown. It's not like a finished game, so you can't completely play it. And there's probably bugs and missing features. Yeah. Uh, the article actually points out that not all of the buttons in the um, interface work. Can you imagine they revamp this game and make it into um, okay? This uh, okay. Um, we got one refinery works for BP, and you're working for Exxon Mobil. All right, <laughs> let's uh, let, let's try and compete each against each other in a multiplayer game. Who can make <laughs> who can make the highest return in oil? And imagine well, that's they, just business. <laughs> and can you imagine all these scenarios they come up with? Like, oh no, extinction rebellion protesters. What do you do? I was like, oh no, saboteurs. What do you do? Okay, so you've just taken real life and made a game of it. That's not fun. You're making making me work now. <laughs> I don't like. I don't want to play a game of like IT tickets that are all exactly realistic because that's just work. <laughs> Well, it is a simulation after all, so yeah. it's kind of simulating real life. I mean, you know, in, order simu- in order for simulation games to happen, you have to use real life examples. Yeah. I mean, that's how SimCity works and Sim Carnivals as well. I'm surprised, though, that Maxis is still surviving after all these years. Like, well, I thought there were a lot of big projects, that yeah. big popular games. Yeah, I thought they were they would have been ex- absorbed by um, EA. They kind of have been. I mean, they were bought out by EA years ago. 
but the um unfortunately they don't get away with releasing good games anymore SimCity was a bit shit and apart from the sims i haven't really heard anything from them since then Spore, where you can create creatures that was a yeah, pretty so looking at the games page on uh the maxis web page yeah the sims 4 the sims mobile sim city <laughs> which was a huge flop um and then the classic section which is all of the stuff they've ever done yeah you know, oh, you know, would be very, you know, would be really funny though. Imagine if they if they bring sim sim refinery, um, loot boxes come in the form of a G, of a corporate guy giving suitcase, giving out large cash, going here you go, here's a loot box. Isn't that just political lobbying? Yep, <laughs> I think I just explained political lobbying in the form of a loot box. <laughs> yep, we could do a series on that. <laughs> the economy in terms of loot boxes, <laughs> gaming stuff. It'd be like surprise mechanics are now put in the form of political lobbying. Oh god, we've just we've just taught the new generation politics. Buy a politician for fifty thousand dollars for the chance to get a tax cut. Ah. <laughs> uh- <laughs> Congratulations! Video games have corrupted the youth <laughs> into politics. Ah, <laughs> oh, they didn't need to corrupt the youth. <laughs> it was all pretty corrupt to begin with. Yep. We've learned from the best. Yep. Ah, uh, well, at least we'll tell the future generation how, uh, that the past, that the future is not grim after all. Which is a story for our, for, for the next topic. Uh, the one of the one of the beloved anime series, The Promised Neverland, will become a live action series on Amazon. Yeah, keep trying. Yeah, your segues are getting better, but uh, <laughs> you'll get there. Dang it. <laughs> So um, Amazon's cooking up a live-action Promised Neverland series with Megan Mal- Malloy set to write and Rodney Rothman on the board of director and executive producer. So this is based on a manga written by Kaiyu Shirai and illustrated by Posaku Demizu. It is uh, previously adapted into a 12-episode TV anime with a second season currently in the works. Uh, one of the producers is um, Mas- Masai Oka, who starred in the Heroes TV series as Hiro Nakamura and uh, previously produced um, Adam Wingard's live-action take on Death Note along with the upcoming work on Mega Man and Attack on Titan. Um, and so you were telling me about the plot of this the other day, though. What's it about? Yeah. So the plot of this is basically set in the year 2045. The story sta- stands up on its deceptively dark premise, initially showcasing a sanguine tale of abandoned children living in a pampered, idyllic existence in an orphanage. However, after some of the smartest kids st- there start to question their primary restriction, a mysterious gate th- that keeps them from leaving the property, a terribly macabre truth is uh, eventually uncovered, treating them as lambs led to the sl- being led to the slaughter. So this is basically just uh, the the future in the time machine, but oh, from yeah. the kid's perspective. Yep. Uh, so with the trio of kids in Emma, Ray, and Norman learning the truth, they participate in a sinister game of cat and mouse as they attempt to figure out how to escape this horrible world and set themselves free of the scary orphanage that they once loved while setting in motion, setting in motion a rebellion. Why do I get the feeling this is like the, watching this is like watching The Great Escape? Uh, it sounds like every young adult dystopia to me. Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it this does sound w- nicely dark, though. Yeah, yeah. So this anime 
uh, debuted in its pages of Weekly Shonen Jump in 2016, and uh, it's uh, less than three years in early 2019 to an anime adapt- adaptation, as I said earlier, and it has become very popular. To this date, the series has sold over 20 million copies. That's a lot of copies. Oh, yeah. And for those who are curious about the director, he was um, one of the directors that worked on the Oscar-winning animated films um, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. But um, what do you think of this um, premise, though? Like, do you reckon it's, or you reckon this will be one that you, you watch? I'm actually tempted to find the uh, original anime and have it check it out while we wait for the full the live action version. Here's my uh, here's my gripe though when it comes to adaptations. Anime adaptations when they try to do it in the ri- when they try to do it in America, it always ends badly, very badly. <laughs> like, Not always. Uh, the uh, Office was all right. I, I meant Japanese anime. Yeah. <laughs> the Office wasn't yeah. an anime. To be fair, when people talk about like The Office being a good American adaptation, it seems to be the only one people come up with. So, you know, hopefully they'll do a good job. Uh, I, I don't know. I mean, you've seen what happened with Red Dwarf when they tried to adapt, adapt it to an American series. See, Red Dwarf, IT Crowd. Uh, <laughs> Wait, there's Captain an IT. Kim. Oh, no, don't get me was started. Was there an American IT Crowd? I think there was. And if I remember correctly, they had Moss, but just shoved them into a completely different setting with different actors. <laughs> Oh, that would have been that would have been actually funny to watch though if they did the American version. See, hang a second, the American yeah. versions. Oh, here we go. So American, yes, American ver- version. Yeah. So Richard Ayoda uh, reprised the role as Moss with Joe McHale, the guy who does the series Community, as Roy, and Jessica Sinclair, who does. Uh, I think she's a v- new actress. Oh, she was in a couple. Of, she, oh, she was in a lot of shows. Was in Veep, uh, the McCarthy's, Marry Me, American Dad as Connie Robinson. Okay, so uh, Jessica St. Clair as Jen and Rocky Carroll. It was in Chicago Hope as Denholm. Huh. So they they've tried it three times. So there's been three different attempts to make an American IT crowd. <laughs> Why wouldn't you give up? <laughs> well, you know what they say: third time's a charm. <laughs> But back to the topic on the um, anime, on, on the anime. See, the problem with anime when it comes to American TV shows is that they they always take creative liberties. Like uh, in the recent Cowboy Bebop, they're not gonna, they said that they're not going to do um, one of the actresses in, they're not going to costume her like what they did in the anime. And that's like saying, okay, we're going to take, the anime made her a very, very, like very sexy badass to something totally morphed and totally different that will devalue the uh, the Japanese anime character significantly. Like, I don't know what... Like, I'm very skeptical about this. Yeah. Like, I don't know what it's they're doing. It's an American they're... remake. You should be skeptical. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, um, yeah, I, I like how... I like how more studios are taking the time to try and adapt to... Adapting foreign series to American TV standards. I'm but... not... I'd like to see more original shows. More original shows? Yeah. Okay. Instead of taking shows that are successful somewhere else and making them American, go and make something new. That's why I don't like movie remakes. 90% of the time, they don't bring anything new to the series. Can you imagine... You've got to do new stuff. New art. Can you imagine... Professor, here's here's, here's a funny one for you. Can you imagine them 
um, them doing a remake of every Marvel movie that came out in the last few years. Please no. <laughs> Imagine remaking all the superhero movies. That would not Stop end up saying that, DJ. Don't <laughs> give them ideas. <laughs> but yeah, you're right. It is Hollywood. They don't have originality. Where was I? What was I thinking? Uh, but um, anyway, so Professor, what game have you been playing? This week, I've been playing Outward Overland. Sorry. Oh, nice. For a nice. completely different game there. Overland <laughs> is another uh, micro strategy roguelite, which um, this one's about traveling across America in the apocalypse of monsters that are attracted to noise. So you basically summarized the um, a quiet room, a quiet basically. place. Yep, a quiet place. Yeah, it's kind of similar to that. But the um, idea is more along the lines of you go from place to place, place to place, scavenge fuel and supplies, and then try to not die. So, so lot- it ends up being quite tense. There's not a whole lot of combat because most of the time you're trying to get in and out without anyone getting hurt. I mean, I'm looking at the uh, video in, in, in this, um, and it's it just reminds me of The Last of Us. Yeah. In, ter- in terms of you've got this, um, you got the man and a companion, and uh, well, the characters are random. The uh, best okay. part is you can pick up dogs. Oh, yeah, yeah. I don't know if um, if like all your human characters die if you lose, but you can have dogs as companions. So is it a turn? I'm looking at it. So is it- it's turn style? Is it turn based? Yeah. Oh, nice. Turn based. So what's the biggest flaw you've encountered in this game? Uh I think the um, the maps are quite small and get a little bit repetitive um, in that I, I think uh, it would be stronger if there were more, uh, if there were levels where you were exploring a building or um, basically just having more place to explore and loot. So there's no, um, like, fr- the, so you can't explore, so there's a hidden wall? Uh yeah, so each um, map is about probably less than 15 by 15. So you end up, uh, you know, you can cross the whole map in a couple of turns. And I think the it would be, the game would be benefited by having the ability to, well, when you hop out of your car, go and loot a, a building or say a farm for food. The main resource is health and fuel for your car. Okay. So how many uh, slots you're allowed to when you when carrying your stuff? Uh it depends on what um what your character has in their pockets and so you can get backpacks. Um you can get a roof rack for your car. I like that you can modify the car. Nice. What so, modifications have you got so far? At the moment I'm driving a hatchback with a uh roof rack. It's a nice touch that um you're not just outfitting your Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today characters you're outfitting your vehicle so it the vehicle in itself is an extra character i I like the design of this game it looks really cool even the uh, monster design looks 
pretty cool too. Yeah, it's uh, got a nice art style. Yeah, it, the creatures remind me of um, Starship Troopers with the bugs. Okay. Yeah, and uh, so how many people? So how many people in the are you allowed in the car? Uh, in the hatchback, you can have three people, but then you only have limited uh, storage. I think in the there's a Ute that you can find as well. I think in the Ute you can have two people, but more storage. Okay. So uh, how many nerdy beatings would you give this one out of? Uh three and a half out of five. Nice. nice. It's a nice, solid, solid game. Good mechanics. Um, I like the well, the sort of the variety in characters you can have. I just wish there was a bit more to explore, and maybe also on that extent that there's less. Uh, maybe some levels where there's less rush to grab everything and get back in the car. Mm-hmm. Because even if you do get in combat, you can take down maybe one or two of the monsters. But that summons tons more. <clears throat> fair enough. Fair enough. Um, my game I've been playing this week it is Shadow Arena. It's a PvP um, Heroes um, Clash game. So PvP what game, sorry? Heroes Clash game. So you can choose your various heroes and pit each other with um, in the player versus player um, game. Okay. And uh, the game also, this game reminds me of For Honor as well, in terms of you you have various heroes using various weapons and you can um, strategize how you take down the opponents. The downside, though, is you don't have the special killing moves, in, un, in, un, um, unlike in For Honor. But yeah, it has a, it has this, it has a bit of, um, what's that, what, what's that genre? Uh, Battle Royale, that's right. Yet another battle royale. Yep. Hey, this one's fun. At least you get to use swords and 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 not the predictable um, guns and whatnot. Okay. Yeah, it feels like the best way to do uh, differentiate your battle royale game at the moment. Yeah. Uh, what well, the character I've been you I've been using his name is Goyen, and he's just he's just a guy with a very big sword. Nothing wrong with that. Yeah. Uh, so you got other characters like uh, Heroine, uh, Maru, uh, Haru, I mean, and uh, Amon Kiris. So I've been, th- I've just been playing that game, and uh, it is fun. But there is a the biggest flaw with this game is you've got a lot of um, but you um, microtransactions. Well, that's not good, is it? Yeah, yeah. Like you've got, you, like they say, like oh, you 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 have to pay this amount of money just to get this, and it sometimes it can get very grindy as well. Like you're attacking the same enemy every now and then, and um, the the combos when you do it when you're using the attacks, even though you've got like huge weapon, it's clunky. Yep. So like while you're swinging this huge sword, like the other opponent, if she has like a a faster weapon um weapon draw she she can um kill you even faster so it's like ah but other than that it's it's okay i mean it's it's not a, it's not a bad game i mean it's got the microtransactions and it's got the clunkiness of it all um i would give this game a 3 3 out of 5 so would you um will you keep playing it i'm going to try to keep playing this uh, a bit more just to see um how much more fun i can have with this game maybe i might not have any fun at all and just go ah you know what this game's stopped for me so but yeah it it looks fun so i, I might give it i might give this give this a bit more game time so uh, right, on- so who are our shout outs this week so on the 9th of June, 1909, Alice Hula uh, Ramsey, a 22-year-old housewife from Hackensack, um, New Jersey, becomes the first woman to drive across the U.S. in a Maxwell 30. 
uh, drives 3,800 miles from Manhattan to San Francisco in 59 days. So uh, on the on June 9, 1909, Alice Hewler Ramsey, a 22-year-old housewife and mother, began a 3,800-mile journey from Hellgate in Manhattan, New York, to San Francisco, California, in a green four-cylinder, 30-horsepower Maxwell DA. On her 59-day trek, she was accompanied by two older sister-in-law, two older sisters-in-law, and um, a 19-year-old friend, Hermine Jantz, none of whom could drive a car. Uh, they arrived amid the Great Fanfare on August 7th, although about three weeks later than originally planned. The group of women used maps from the American Automobile Association to make the journey. Only 152 of the 3,600 miles, that's uh, 244 of the 5,767 kilometers that the group traveled were paved. Over the course of the drive, Ramsey changed 11 times tires, cleaned the spark plugs, repaired the broken brake pedal, and had to sleep in the car when, um, when it was stuck in the mud. Uh, the women were uh, most navigated by using telephone poles, following the poles with more wires in hopes that they would lead to a town. Along the way, they crossed the trail of a manhunt for a killer in Nebraska. Uh, Ramsey received a case of the bedbugs from a Wyoming hotel, and in Nevada, they were surrounded by a Native American hunting party with bows and arrows drawn. Ramsey was named the woman motorist of the century by in 1960. How is this not a movie yet? <laughs> I know! Oh, this would have been a great movie to watch! Oh, that's, a, that's amazing. Like, can you, I, I, I wouldn't leave... If I had the bedbugs and American Indians chasing after me, I would have just gone, no, you know what? I, I'm out. I'm out. Oh, that would have been a very epic road trip. Yeah, and following the phone lines? Like, <laughs> that could have gone so wrong. Oh, can you imagine doing this in modern standards? Well, it's a lot easier now. You just ask Siri how to get there. Oh, no, no. no. Can, oh, okay, Let, let's say, for example, but let's say we don't use Siri or or um, any, any of the GPS, just use whatever they used. Can you imagine how long would it take now? I think it would be quite easy because we've got better signs. There are better roads, better signs. Uh, cars are faster and more comfortable and more reliable. Yeah. 11 tires. How the heck did that? Wow. How well, the heck? Did... They would have been on dirt roads mostly. Yeah. I'm just wondering where did they get the 11 from? I mean, you got the fu- you got the, the you got the one at the back in the boot, but... They broke they... them multiple times and they would have picked up more in each town. Yeah. Possible. Like, I'm imagining the 19-year-old. Can you imagine her in the car going, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? You're like, I'm not dealing with this. Oh, amazing work. I will say this. Amazing work. On the 9th of June, 2020, uh, Kathy Sullivan, first American woman to walk in space, has become the first woman to reach the deepest known spot in the ocean. On Sunday, Kathy Sullivan, 68, an astronaut and oceanographer, emerged from her 35,810-foot dive to the Challenger Deep, um, according to the EYOS Expeditions, a company coordinating the logistics of the mission. This also makes Dr. Sullivan the first person to both walk in space and to descend to the deepest point in the ocean. The Challenger Deep is the lowest point of the many seabed recesses that crisscross the globe. Dr. Sullivan and Victor L. Vescovo, an explorer funding the mission, spent about an hour and a half at their destination, nearly seven miles down in a muddy depression in the Mariana Trench, which is about 200 miles southwest of Guam. Um, As a hybrid oceanographer and astronaut, this was an extraordinary day of Extraordinary day, a once-in-a-lifetime day, seeing the moonscape of the Challenger Deep and then comparing notes with my colleague, 
on the ISS about a remarkable reusable inner space adult spacecraft, Dr. Sullivan said in a statement released by EYOS Expeditions on Monday. Apparently, um, she, apparently, um, I think, who was the director that also did the same quest? Uh, James Cameron? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's a very, that's a very, um, big feat. I'll say that. So on the 11th of June, 2020, Mel Winkler passes away at 78. So uh, Mel Winkler, a character actor with numerous TV, film, and stage credits, as well as being a recognizable voice behind characters on the animated series. Um, Mel Winkler appeared in such films such as Doc Hollywood and Devil in a Blue Dress. After a stint, after a 1969 stint on Daytime's The Doctors, he appeared st- uh, steadily in episodic TV roles from the 1970s through the early 2000s, such, including such series such as um, The Cosby Show, The Young Riders, Lois and Clark, The New Adventures of Superman, Star Trek Voyager, Touched by an Angel, NYPD Blue, and The Shield. As a voice actor, he was best known as the voice of the Guardian mask Aku Aku in the Crash Bandicoot series, Lucius Fox in the New Batman Adventures, and Johnny Snowman in the TV series Oswald. He passed away in his sleep at, the, at his home in Los Angeles, California. On the 11th of June 2020, Queen Elizabeth dials in to, to first official video call, video call to chat to UK, UK's um, carers. The Queen has become the latest person to get into the lockdown trend of group video chats after she made her first official public-facing conference call. Sat comfortably from the Oak Room in Windsor Castle, the 94-year-old monarch dialed in to chat to four carers about the difficulties they had to face during the coronavirus pandemic. The monarch, dressed in a floral dress and pearls, was also joined by her daughter, Princess Anne, in the call on June 4th to mark Carers Week. In a video shared by the royal family's Twitter account, the Queen praised the carers and chief executive of the Carers Trust, Gareth Horwells for their extraordinary efforts. She can be heard saying, I'm very impressed by what you what you have achieved already. I'm very glad to have been able to enjoy uh, to join you today. This was a first for the Queen's long reign and she was last to join the um, court and the first to leave. A formal etiquette of royal engagements that Buckingham Palace decided to pers- to preserve. One carer on the call said it was surreal to be sitting in, in her bedroom while talking to two royals on a video call. Now, is it okay, like, you know the memes about showing up to your work meetings with no pants on because you're on a, a Skype call? Yeah. Must one wear pants when video calling the queen? <laughs> I don't know. That, that's, uh, <laughs> I, I, I was thinking more like I wonder, Prince with Prince Anne. I bet you she must be. She must have the rough job of saying like, "No, no, Grandma, you, that's not the button to press." <laughs> you, grandma, you, it's recording. Yeah, I did think that was probably how it would go. Ah, <laughs> oh, oh, okay. And, and, and then uh, imagine at the end of the phone call, like, Grandma, it's still recording. As long as the Queen was wearing pants. <laughs> <laughs> can you imagine it, it now become beca- now this becoming a thing? Can you imagine the Queen doing her Christmas message through Zoom, like she had, like she uses MI six to hack into every laptop in England and do Christmas messages through there? That's interesting. I think I just made a new hor- a spy thriller, haven't I? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so, uh, anyways, uh, moving along to our remembrances. On the 9th of June, 68 AD, Nero, 
Uh, Nero Claudius Caesar Augustus Germanicus, uh, born Lucius Domitus Ahenobarbarus, was Roman was Roman emperor from 58 to 68 AD, the last ruler of the Julio Claudia Claudian dynasty. He was adopted by his great uncle Claudius and became Claudius's heir and successor. Like Claudius, uh, Nero became emperor with the consent of the Praetorian Guard. Nero's mother Agrippina, the younger, dominated Nero's early life and decisions until he cast her off and had her killed five years into his reign. Uh, Nero's rule is usually associated with tyranny and extravagance. Most Roman sources, such as uh, Suetonius and Cassius Dio, offer overwhelming negative assessments of his personality and reign. Tacitus um, claims that the Roman people thought him compulsive and corrupt. Suetonius tells that many Romans believed that the great fire of Rome was instigated by Nero to clear the way for his um, planned palatial complex, the Domus Aurea. Um, according to Tacitus, he was set up Christians as scapegoats for the fire and burned them alive, seemingly motivated not by public justice, but by personal cruelty. Uh, there is evidence of his popularity among the Roman commoners, especially in the eastern provinces of the empire where a population arose that Nero had not died and would return. At least three leaders of the short-lived failed rebellions presented themselves as Nero reborn to enlist public support. He died from suicide outside Rome at the age of 30. With his final words, too late, this is fidelity. Now, to be clear, I didn't insist on this one because it had so many fun names for the DJ to say. Although, I will say this, like, Nero, I'm thinking of Nero it's like this guy. This guy makes one dictator's look like ah, yeah, nothing. Well, he's not really a dictator, is he? Uh, I mean, he burned down a city to build his own palace. So yeah, yeah. Um, so on the 9th of June, nineteen fifty-nine, Adolf Windows, um, Adolf Otto Reinhold Windows, a chemical German chemist who won a Nobel Prize in chemistry in nineteen twenty-eight for his work on sterols and their relation to vitamins. He was he was the doctoral advisor of Adolf Butenart, um, who was who also won a Nobel Prize in Chemistry in 1939. Throughout his life, Windows won many awards, including the Gold Medal, the Pasteur Medal, and the Nobel Prize for Chemistry. In addition to his many accomplishments and discoveries in science, Windows was also one of the very few German chemists who did not work with the Nazis and openly opposed their regime. As the head of the Chemical Institute of the um, University of Göttingen, um... Windas personally defended one of his Jewish graduate students from dismissal. Windas believed that while every man has had a moral code, his science was motivated by curiosity and not driven by politics, ethics, and applications of his discovery. This view's viewpoint caused Windas to decline to research poison gas during World War I. He was involved in the discovery of the transformation of cholesterol through several steps to vitamin, to vitamin D3, also known as Calcifioral. He gave his patents to American Bayer, and they brought out the medic. They brought out the medicine for uh, in 1927. He died at the age of Gotten at the age of 82 in Gottingen, West Germany. And for those curious, what is Vigantol? It is. Uh, let me look it up. You didn't prepare. Oh, I did prepare. It is a. Uh, dang it. Second. Okay. Oh, they didn't even say it here. You gotta prepare. Uh, <clears throat> that's true. That's we true. Can tell you're not a scout because you won't be prepared. <laughs> Dang it! It is uh, used as a vitamin supplement for uh, from lichens, which is suitable for vegans, and it's also a rot- 
is also in a written a written aside as well. Hmm. Um, so on the 9th of June 1990, George Beadle, uh, George Wells Beadle, American geneticist, in 1958, he shared one half of the Nobel Prize in Physiology on med- or medicine with Edward Tatum um, for their discovery of the role of genes in regulating biochemical events within cells. Beadle and Tatum's key experiment involved exposing the bread mold Neurospora crassa to x-rays causing mutations. In a series of experiments, they showed that these mutations caused changes in specific enzymes involved in metabolic pathways. These experiments led to propose a direct link between genes and enzymatic reactions known as the one-gene-one enzyme hypothesis. The uh, one-gene-one enzyme hypothesis is the idea that genes act through the production of enzymes with each gene responsible for producing a single enzyme that in turn affects a single step in a metabolic path. He died from Alzheimer's disease at the age of 85 in Pomona, California. And uh, on to our famous birthdays. On the 9th of June, 1640, Leopold I, Holy Roman Emperor. Yes, that is actually a name. Holy Roman Emperor. So, uh, Leopold I, who has the full name, Leopold Ignaz Joseph Balthasar Felician, uh, Holy Roman Emperor, King of Hungary, Croatia, and Bohemia. Uh, the second son of Ferdinand III, Holy Roman Emperor, by his first wife, Maria Anne of Spain, Leopold became heir apparent in 1654 by the death of his elder brother, Ferdinand IV. Uh, elected in 1658, Leopold ruled the Holy Roman Emperor until, Empire, until his death in 1705, becoming the longest ruling Habsburg Emperor at 46 years and 9 months. Leopold's rule is known for conflicts with the Ottoman Empire in the East and rivalry between um with louis the is it i'm gonna get this wrong on side louis the is it 15 14th i don't know you got the one reading it yeah i know it looks like 24 yeah uh contemporary and i don't know i've lost my place in the notes some number like what uh, it is xiv xiv i'll be 14 14 okay i thought it was 24 okay all right 14 uh contemporary and first cousin in the west after me after more than a decade of warfare leopold emerged victorious from the great turkish war thanks to the military talents of prince eugene of savoy by the treaty of kalowitz leopold Leopold recovered almost all of the kingdom of Hungary, which had fallen under Turkish power in the years after the 1526 battle of Mohawks. Uh, Leopold fought three wars against France, the Franco-Dutch War, the Nine-Year War, and the War of the Spanish Succession. In this last, Leopold um, sought to give his younger son the entire Spanish inheritance, disregarding the will of the late Charles II. Leopold started a war that soon engulfed much of Europe. When peace returned, Austria could, could, not, be, uh, could not be said to have emerged as triumphant as it had from the war against the Turks. He was born in Vienna. Look at the portrait of that man. Very nice hair. Great hair. <laughs> you reckon it's a wig? Mm, I don't know. Mm. On the uh, 9th of June, 1843, uh, Berta von Suttner. Uh, Berta, Berta Felicitas Sophia Freyfrau uh, von Suttner, also known as Baron Baroness Berta von Suttner, the co- Countess Kingsky. <laughs> Another one we picked because of oh, the complicated no. names. I oh, know. Uh, Austrian, Austrian bohemian pacifist and novelist. In 1905, she became the second female uh, Nobel laureate after Marie Curie in um, 1903, the first woman to be awarded the Nobel Peace Prize and the first Austrian laureate. In 1889, Sattner became the, a leading figure in the peace movement with the publication of a pacifist novel, 
die waffen nieder, uh, which in translation is lay down your arms, which made her one of the leading figures of the Austrian peace movement. The book was published in 37 editions and translated to 20, 12, novel, uh, 12 languages. In 1897, she presented Emperor Franz Joseph I of Austria with the letter signatures using the establishment of an international court of justice and took part in the first Hague Convention in 1899 with the help of Theodore Hurls, uh, who paid for her trip as the correspondent of the Zionist newspaper, Die Welt. Satanist pacifism was influenced by the uh, writings of Emmanuel Kant, Henry Thomas Buckle, Buckle Herbert Spencer, Charles Darwin, and Leo Tolstoy. Tolstoy um, praised Die Waffen Nida, uh, conceiving priests as a natural state impaired by the human aberrance of war and militarism. As a result, she argued that a right to peace could be demanded under international law and was necessary in the context of an evolution Darwinist concept of history. Uh, Santner was a respected journalist with one historian describing her as a most per- perceptive and adept political commentator. She was born in Prague, Kingdom of Bohemia. Uh, 9th of June 1961, Michael J. Fox. Uh, Michael Andrew Fox, known professionally as Michael J. Fox, is, Can- is a Canadian American actor, comedian, author, film producer, and activist with a film and television career spanning from the 1970s. Wait, so what does a J stand for? I think it, I'm guessing it, it's put there as as a moniker, I think. Yeah, probably. <clears throat> it's like Nicholas Cage. Like he, it's a moniker for his original name. So. Yeah, because um, at least in the UK, actors skilled rules are that you can only have one actor with a particular name. Yeah. So um, 19- so he starred in the Back to the Future trilogy in what which he portrayed Marty McFly. Other notable roles uh, have included his portrayal of Alex P. Keaton on the American sitcom Family Ties and Mike Flaherty on the uh, ABC sitcom Sp- Spin City. He had won five uh, Primetime Emmy Awards, four Golden Globes, a Grammy Award, and two Screen Actor Guild Awards. Fox was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease in 1991 at the age of 29 and disclosed his condition to the public in 1998. He semi-retired from acting in 2000 as the symptoms of the disease worsened. He has since become an advocate for research towards finding a cure and founded the Michael J. Fox Foundation. Since 1999, Fox had mainly worked as a voiceover actor in films such as Stuart Little and Disney's Atlantis, The Lost Empire. On the CBS TV show, The Good Wife, he earned Emmy nominations for three consecutive years for his recurring role as crafty author- attorney Lou- is it Lewis? Louis. Oh, Lo- uh, Louis Canning. Uh, he, also- he has also taken recurring guest roles and cameo appearance in Boston Legal, Scrubs, Kirby Cur- Enthusiasm, Rescue Me, and Designated Survivor. He was appointed an officer of the Order of Canada in 2010 and was inducted into Canada's Walk of Fame in 2000. He was born in Edmonton, Alberta. Now that's a very, very um, high-profile regiment. Uh, events of interest. On the 9th of June, 53 AD, the Roman Emperor Nero marries Claudia Octavia. In 53 AD, Octavia was married to her adopted brother Nero, after she was legally transferred to another clan. Apparently, her, st- her stepmother, Agrippina, had planned this marriage even before her own marriage to Claudius. Nevertheless, Nero succeeded his adopted uh, father as emperor, making Octavia empress. It appears their marriage was loveless and also childless. On the 9th of June, 68 AD, Nero commits suicide after quoting Homer's Iliad, thus ending the Julio... Claudian um, dynasty and starting the civil war known as Year of the Four Emperors. 
Uh, Nero failed to respond decisively to a revolt in Gaul, um, prompting further unrest in Africa and in Spain, where the governor uh, Galba declared himself legate of the Senate and Roman people. Soon, the Praetorian Guard declared allegiance to Galba, and the Senate followed suit, declaring Nero an enemy of the people. Nero attempted to flee, but upon learning that his arrest and execution were imminent, he took his own life. Fifty years later, his historian suit. Suetonius reported Nero's final lament, What an artist dies in me. Uh, the civil war during the year of the four emperors was described by ancient historians as a troubling period. According to Ta- Tacitus, uh, this instability was rooted in fact that emperors could no longer rely on the perceived legitimacy of their imperial bloodline, as Nero and those before him could. Galba began his um, short reign and with the execution of many of Nero's allies. One such noble enemy included Nymphidius Sabinus, who claimed to be the son of Emperor Caligula. The uh, social, military, and political upheavals of the period had empire-wide repercussions, which include the outbreak of the revolt of the Batavi. Man, Nero had a very, very interesting life. He did. Um, 9th of June, 1959, the USS George Washington is launched. It's the first nuclear-powered ballistic missile submarine. The uh, USS George Washington was launched on 9th of June, 1959, sponsored by Mrs. Ollie Mae Anderson, nee Rollins, uh, wife of U.S. Treasury Secretary Robert B. Anderson and commissioned on 30th of December 1959 as SSBN 598 with Commander B. James B. Osborne in command of the Blue Crew and Commander J. L. Frum Jr. in command of the Gold Crew. The uh, George Washington was originally scheduled to be the USS Scorpion, but during her uh, construction, she was lengthened by the insertion of a 130-foot pole missile section and finished as a fleet ballistic missile submarine. The George Washington was commissioned into service in December 1959, and the United States instantly gained the most powerful deterrent force imaginable, a stealth platform with enormous nuclear firepower. Arguably, it could be considered the submarine that has the most that has most influenced world events in the 20th century. In the early 1980s, the George Washington had her missile removed and was reclassified as an attack submarine before being de- decommissioned several years later. Now that was a very, very interesting sub. Yeah, would not want to mess with that. Yep. <laughs> uh, 9th of June, 1979, the ghost train fire at Luna Park, Sydney, Australia, kills Sav- Seven. On the night of 9th of June, 1979, a fire broke out inside the ride at approximately 10.59 p.m. Uh, due to a combination of low water pressure, understaffing within the park, and an inadequate coverage of the ghost town by the park's fire hose system, the fire was able to completely consume the ride. It took an hour to bring the fire under control, but it was extinguished before any significant damage could be done to the adjacent river caves and Big Dipper. The fire killed six children and one adult and destroyed the amusement park's ghost train. Inadequate fire fighting measures and low staffing caused the fire to completely destroy the ride, which was first reconstructed in 1931. Or first constructed, sorry, and had been transported from Glenelg. Is that those? Glenelg. Glenelg. Oh, thank you. Uh, South Australia to Milsons Point, New South Wales, during 1934 and 1935. Originally, the fire was blamed on electrical faults, but arson by unknown figures 
had also been claimed. The exact cause of the fire could not be determined by a coronial inquiry. The coroner also ruled that while the actions of Luna Park's management and staffing before and during the fire, and particularly their, their choosing not to follow advice on the installation of a sprinkler system in the ride, breached their duty of care, charges of uh, criminal negligence should not be laid. The case was reopened in 1987. No new findings were made, although the police investigation and coronal inquiry were criticized. The fire forced the closure of Luna Park until 1982, where it was reopened under a new name and new owners. I always wanted to go to Luna Park. It's pretty cool. Yeah, I've been there a couple of times. But um, the interesting thing is, though, like, there's this picture of a couple of the kids who died in the fire with a creepy street actor, oh. street performer, dressed as some sort of, like, demon. Uh. Which, apart from the footage of the fire itself being pretty terrifying, is also itself a bit terrifying. It sounds like it, it's like one of those fore- foreshadowing things. Yeah. Uh. Um, anything else before we uh, call it? Well, you, we can, uh, you can now support us for $5 a month on podhero.com. So yeah. podhero.com is a, uh, a new service that we've signed up to. If you sign up to that for $5 a month or $6 if you want to support the, uh, the service itself, then your $5 subscription gets split between the, uh, the shows that you listen to. So just a great way to help out your favorite podcast there. And you can find all of the That's Not Canon podcasts on, on the site, including the new one. There's now an Extinction Rebellion podcast that uh, the Podfather has helped set up. Hey, that'd be cool. Imagine giving them Sim Refinery to the Extinction Rebellion podcasters. That's, um, that would be interesting. Like, would they deliberately try to crash the economy of the, of the game to shut it down? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, obviously, it doesn't have any real-world effects, so you could just play it if you wanted. Yeah, that's true. So the podcast is called XR, XRSEQ Podcast. And there's another one, Climate Rebels AUST. So, yeah. Um, so you can also find us, so you can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, uh, on our That's Not Canon website, uh, where we have an archive of old episodes. All of us, all of those um, details will be in our show notes. And um, yeah, that's, that's all we have for this week. Uh, Take care of yourselves, stay hydrated and huru. And we'll see you next week. I hope you enjoyed the show. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.